week. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to examine the Jewish calendar, the particular uh, events, holidays that we celebrate every year, and to get a deeper insight and understanding as to the themes, the rituals, the mitzvahs, uh, the history of what happened, and to try to make uh, our Jewish practice more meaningful. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole introduction I did last week, but I'll do a similar introduction with new content, so everyone wins. Um, in Judaism, we don't like the word, the, the word we dislike the most perhaps is rituals. Rituals, because rituals seem to be devoid of meaning. You could do something, and if it's not infused with an understanding of why you're doing it, it doesn't really impact you. So, like, with any, any, any one of the mitzvahs that we have, any one of the thousand different things that we do as Jews, it could be from prayer, to Shabbat, to the line Shabbat candles, to Hanukkah, to Purim, Pesach, Iri Matzah, all these things, there's a spectrum of rituals to meaning. You could do it, so you have two people eating matzah. Right? Both of them are eating matzah. One of them is just chewing on crackers, and the other one is tapping into an experience uh, that defines our nation. So while they, they're actually doing the same thing, to one of them it's a ritual, to one of them it's a meaning. And the goal of this presentation is to try to give the background and then the understanding and the lessons behind what could be viewed as rituals, the mitzvahs that, are, that, you know, that define our calendar and our holidays, and try to infuse them with the understanding of why we're doing it. And that way, when you reach, when you eat the, consume the matzah in a week, you know exactly why we're doing this. And what's the significance of it? What am I supposed to get out of it in a spiritual sense? Uh, so that's the that's the that's the general theory, and then the more specific theory is the the idea of how we view time. Uh, in American society, we have lots of uh, memorializations of events the past. We have the July Fourth, which is uh, Declaration of Independence, and we have uh, all the birthdays of all the presidents that give us another extra Monday off. And, right? These are these are these are dates where symbolize events that happened in the past. And similarly, in in, in the Jewish calendar, we have Purim is on the day where the Purim uh, miracle happened. Hanukkah is when Hanukkah happened, and Passover happened in the, you know in the springtime in the fifteenth day of, of 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 the Hebrew month of Nisan. So you would think perhaps that the reason why we do certain acts associated with certain holidays on a certain point in time is because you're trying to memorialize that particular event. And there's just, you know, you could have picked any day of the year, but you figured it's nice to do it on that same day where that same event happened. Right? Right? Wrong. Wrong. So... This is a crucial point. We are not trying to merely memorialize it. Because if we were memorializing, like you said, it's just arbitrary, the date. What we are in fact doing in the Jewish holidays is reliving it. And whatever happened in yesteryear is relived today when we reach that same point in time. 
Well, let me explain. Uh, we could view time as being linear. Right? It's just, uh, you know, we just, we just live and we just keep on going through time. In, in Jewish philosophy, we view time as being somewhat of a circle, maybe perhaps a racetrack or a circle. And every point in time, being a certain station where certain spiritual energies are experienced. For example, this is a good example I did bring last week. Uh, at the end of the prayer every morning, there's a certain psalm of the day. Are you familiar with that? There's a certain psalm at the end of every prayer, one for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Shabbos. And what's interesting is if you analyze the psalm of the day, you'll notice that every day corresponds to the original week of creation. So if you examine Sunday, the psalm associated with Sunday, it corresponds to the Sunday, the first day of creation. So if you go to Genesis and you analyze what happened on the first day, you'll find some corresponding theme in the psalm. And similarly on Shabbat, you'll find obviously on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. Point being that on Sundays, there's a certain spiritual energy associated with the original Sunday. And every Sunday, we could tap into whatever special spiritual energy exists, and that's kind of like the theme of the day. And that's why the prayer is associated with that theme. And we even have this is a little bit, uh, takes us a little bit further. I just thought about this. Uh, the Talmud talks about. Talmud, this is a very interesting piece of Talmud in Tractate Shabbos 155 or 56, I can't remember, I think 156, and it's describing the character of people born on certain days of the week. It says, someone's born on a Sunday, he'll have this character. And Monday, he'll have that character. And Tuesday, and that character. Like Some good, and some maybe less good. Um, which, is, which is interesting, and, and it's all associated with, with the first day of creation because there's certain spiritual forces that exist in certain days. And our life today is impacted because, uh, by, by these spiritual realities. How are we doing here? Need some feedback. Vitaly, make sense? Yeah. It does. Okay. Like <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so what we're going to try to do today is go through certain holidays, try to, you know, distill them or uh, uh, crystallize the core themes of the holidays and try to figure out how that is associated with the mitzvah that was established for that particular holiday and to try to glean from that what we should do or what we can experience today uh, in 2014 when we experience that holiday. So last week we did um, Rosh Hashanah. We joined in the order of the Jewish holiday. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. We dabbled a little bit with the various uh, Jewish fast days. Today, hopefully, we're going to finish everything else. So we'll do Hanukkah, Purim Passover, Sviyata uh, Omer. We'll get into that, hopefully. Lagba Omer, Shvuas, uh, 17th day of Tammuz, Tisha B'Av, and the month of Bel, which just seems like a lot. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how much we, how far we get. But we're finishing today, so whether or not we cover everything that uh, I have planned. Okay, so let's start with Hanukkah. Story of Hanukkah we're kind of all familiar with. Uh, it's actually uh, written extensively about in the Book of Maccabees, which is which was not included in the uh, Jewish canon. Uh, 
the Jewish Bible consists of 24 books. Um, one of the books is the book of Esther, which talks about the story of Purim. Uh, even though um, there was a book written by, we don't know exactly who, it's apocryphal, but by Jewish sources about the story of Hanukkah, book of Maccabees, uh, we still uh, do not include it in the Jewish Bible because it was written after the Jewish Bible was canonized. So there was uh, a certain finality associated with the Jewish canon, uh, and therefore the Jewish Bible was set in stone, and the Book of Esther, in fact, was the last one included. So that's why it doesn't have the same status, but still the story seems to be um, legitimate, and the story basically tells about, uh, we know that Alexander, uh, he just conquered everything. Before he was like 30, the guy conquered half the world, uh, at least the known world. And he dies, and he dies, and before you know it, it seems, it, it, before you, you know, it became, becomes readily apparent that there isn't one leader that's able to uh, control that entire, uh, that entire uh, empire. So it gets split up into various parts. We have the, uh, like the, what's called the uh, Greek, traditional Greek or Macedonians. You have the uh, Seleucids, I think they're called, the ones in Egypt. And you have the Assyrians. And the state of Israel is caught in between all of this. And the Jewish people, the temple still extant, the second temple still in existence. We're talking about the year 160, 170 before the Common Era. So about 170 years before the year zero that we have right now. And there was a mounting tension between the Jews and the Jewish practice and their uh, Greek or Assyrian Greek uh, rulers. There was some uh, restrictions on Jewish practice. For example, uh, the practice of, of brismila, of circumcision, which if you study Jewish history, you'll find that more than any other mitzvah, the mitzvah, the, the uh, uh, the mitzvah of circumcision was targeted more than anyone else. As recently as the USSR, I know there was a, uh, there was a restriction on on circumcision, uh, and it's very interesting because this mitzvah of circumcision is was the first mitzvah that we got, and it's kind of like a, a defines the Jew, so to speak, by this mitzvah. And this is also the one thing that Gentiles or the Gentile. Uh, uh, forces have tried to attack more than anyone else. So it's on one hand, it's the most Jewish mitzvah. On the other hand, it's been uh, targeted the most. Um, so the Greeks uh, tell us that uh, we can no longer do that, so that has to go into the underground. This will repeat itself many times. The Greeks tried to... Huh? It's repeating now. Well, in some places in Europe. Yeah, like there are bands to... Yeah, we've been, we've been there before. That's uh, that's true. Yeah, and in Europe, I read uh, that in Europe, the rates of circumcision, even though circumcision is, is considered, uh, it prevents you it prevents a lot of uh, uh, illnesses and diseases. Uh, still, in Europe, like from the seventies, we are like the vast majority of Europeans were circumcised, not not Jews, but just greater society. And today, it's dropped like down to like five or ten percent. So there's been a social trend away from it, and also a legislative well, and attempt. And it's being to, cast as um, 
as someone with basically genital mutilation. Right, it's always like it's barbaric. Yeah, and all these it's, court cases about parents' rights versus a child's right. And yeah, and this is and this is nothing new. And yeah. the, the Romans, as we'll get, you know, wonderful we'll talk about them so much today. Uh, the Romans that came after the Greeks, kind of the spiritual heirs of the Greeks, they were obsessed, as we know, with the human body, and they viewed circumcision as mutilation of the human body. That's why all the all the Roman statues are all these naked uh, yeah. naked people because they just love the human body, mm-hmm. and to them tampering it within within any way is you know is is, is the worst offense possible. That's why they also uh, challenge that as well. And what's interesting is that in Judaism, one of the themes behind I apologize uh, behind circumcision is the fact that our body is not perfect. And our body is going to be the chief impediment in our way to, in our soul's path to greatness. Because uh, we view life as a conflict between the body and the soul. The soul has its agenda and its desires. Uh, it's you know, more the intellectual realm. Uh, and the body has its agenda and its whims. And, and, and what it wants is going to always stand in the way of what, what the, and that's the, that's the conflict that we experience. And that's where free will comes in. What are we going to give preference to, our soul or our body? And at the beginning of a child's life, we're trying to instill in them the principle that your body is something you're going to need to work on because it's not perfect. Your soul is perfect. Your, your, soul, your, your job in life is to, t- is to have the soul influence your body to bring your body to perfection and not the other way around where your soul uh, is sullied by the body's activities and the body taking preference over the soul. Um, so the Greeks or the Assyrian Greeks, they start doing uh, bands and certain rituals. They want to institute changes to the temple. Right? The temple had its uh, regimen of uh, of sacrifices every day. The temple was uh, fully functioning. They say we want to slaughter pigs. Pigs are the, you know, they, 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 and, and the pig is always viewed as the paragon of impurity. You can't have a, bring a pig into the temple. So there was this mounting pressure, plus there was internal conflict uh, amongst the Jews themselves, and we find this again and again. Whenever there's internal uh, strife amongst the Jewish people, that's when the Gentiles have, or, or the non-Jews, or the, one, the forces that are trying to eradicate the Jewish people, that's when their attempts are successful. But when the Jews are united, uh, we can withstand any uh, challenges, any external challenges. But there was uh, internal conflict amongst the Jews themselves. You have the different groups that are called the Pharisees on one hand, the more traditional Jews. You have the Hellenized Jews, Jews that want to adopt the Greek culture and the Greek way of life. Uh, and that internal conflict and that external conflict, and there was this um, uh, revolt. You have Matisyahu. Matisyahu is, uh, is the high priest. High priest is like the uh, spiritual head of the Jewish people, and he says, that's it, we're done, we, you know, we reached a tipping point, and they, uh, uh, there was this one wonderful episode where they came to him and they said, slaughter a pig, and all the Jews says, no, and one Jew says, fine, I'll do it, and then Matasiao says, what the heck, what's going on over here, and they, you know, he just gets enraged, and they start attacking, and this whole fight, they run to the mountains, and if you, you read the book of Maccabees, you see like it, there, was a, there was you know a revolt, an organized revolt, and we have Judah, Maccabee, and we have the, the Hasmoneans, that are called the family of the Hasmoneans, and it was like a 25-year struggle, str- uh, str- struggle, and eventually they 
kind of bounced the Greeks out. And, um, you know, it's, we, the traditional story of, of Hanukkah doesn't give us the whole picture of what actually happened. But there was a, a 25-year military battle. And uh, eventually, Matthew died, and, Ju- and Judah Maccabee died. And he died because he, he died uh, killing an elephant. An elephant is the equivalent of a tank in ancient times. Uh, he was under the impression that certain military leadership was on top of the tank. So he went under the tank, and he killed a tank from the bottom. He went under the tank, but on, under the elephant, and he killed the elephant. The elephant collapsed on him, and that's how he died. Uh, in the end, they weren't, they weren't even there. Uh, they weren't even... Um, uh, the people that he had wanted to take down weren't actually there. Uh, either way, you have this wonderful family. Eventually, they establish a certain dynasty that would exist for about 100 years uh, uh, till the, at the turn of the uh, millennium. Uh, it's uh, always viewed in, in history as being somewhat of a tragedy because um, the original founders of the Hasmoneans, Matthew and his five sons, and Judah Maccabee and Shimon Maccabee. By the way, the word Maccabee is an acronym for Mi Kamocha Be'elim Hashem, which means, which is a verse in, in Psalms, who is like you amongst all gods, our God. So, uh, Maccabees. Uh, but uh, this wonderful story started with such promise, and eventually the, the later generation of Jewish leaders, of Jewish rulers, from the Hasmoneans weren't quite that good to uh, to you know to Jewish traditional values, and they were uh, they became uh, chummy chums with the Romans, uh, and eventually that uh, all uh, led to the Romans taking too much of a of an influence, and eventually culminating in the temple being destroyed and the Jewish dispersal um, that ensued. So King Herod was also dynasty, <coughs> right? Uh, yeah, well, he was I at the end. Yeah, yeah, he was towards the end of that. And another very uh, tragic figure, also like somewhat of an uh, enigmatic figure, because on one hand, he did so much for the Jews. He built, he built, he kept them building. He refurbished the temple, King Herod's temple. On the other hand, uh, there was questions as to his... He, there was a debate whether or not he was even Jewish because he was part of the Samaritans. Samaritans came... Um, they were transplanted uh, during the uh, Babylonians. The Babylonians came... Their theory of dom- world domination was capture land and then take the indigenous population and move them all to someplace else. And they would, like, scramble the whole world of all their, all their subjects that they ca- conquered and then they would... You, suddenly you're moved to France. I'm like, what are you going to do? You're going to organize a revolt? What are you going to do? Like, it, by the time you get your, your act together, it's 100 years later. So um, northern Israel, the 10 tribes, 10 lost tribes, if you've heard of, that, heard of them, right? So that was the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Israel was split after King Solomon. I don't want to get too much into the history. King Solomon uh, dies, and eventually there was a split. The northern uh, this kingdom of Israel was called the kingdom of Judah. Uh, 10 tribes versus two tribes. Eventually those 10 tribes are dispersed with the uh, uh, with the conquering of the Babylonians, and a few hundred late, years later was the first time we destroyed the kingdom of Judah. I feel like I'm boring everyone. Either way, the Samaritans were brought in to northern Israel when the ten tribes were transplanted out of Israel as a result of the Babylonians following Babylonian protocol of a captured uh, nation. So it seems like this guy Herod, who eventually rose to power, was a descendant of these people, and therefore there's like dialogue to the Talmud where the, the rabbis are like torn what to do with this guy Herod because we don't even know for sure if he's Jewish.
you know, but, but he comes from the end of the uh, Hasmonean uh, dynasty. Yes. So, yeah, two questions. One, I've heard, I've read that Hanukkah is considered a minor holiday, almost dismissively. Is that because it's not in the canon? Well, it's more than that. It's not Torah. It's not, it's not from the Torah. So, like, you have the holiday of Purim as well. Uh, even though it is in the canon, but it's not in the Torah. Like, Pesach is in the Torah, so it's a law. It's a, it's a, it's a Torah law. As opposed to Hanukkah and Purim are two examples of rabbinic law. And there's only, there's only seven mitzvahs that are rabbinic mitzvahs. Uh, the rest of rabbinic law is com- comprises um, rabbinic edicts or prevented offenses against a Torah law. But this is, this is an example where the rabbis instituted a law and a holiday to commemorate an event that happened post the Torah. So the practice of giving um, little gifts over the eight days, when did that come about? And was that, was that our response? Was that Judaism's response to Christmas gifts? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. It's not brought down in the sources about Hanukkah. So yes, I would assume it's it's much more recent, um, and I I think there's legitimacy to the claim that it was somewhat uh, I don't know if it was copied or it was developed or like you don't want to be the only kid who doesn't get some some gift if you're the you know you're you're the Jewish kid in the non-Jewish environment and everyone has gifts and all you have is latkes and like so they, <laughs> that's what we feel it's like we're torn on one hand like we don't want to be like them but then on the other hand. You don't want them looking at all the other kids and being like... Being jealous and left out. Yeah, that's why I think it's a good thing. I think the kids should be proud of their... And say, you get one gift, we get eight. Yeah. yeah. I'm Jewish. We yeah, I like that. Um, yeah. Especially especially in, you know, in, as our society evolves, where we have so much uh, intercourse with, with, with the Gentiles. It used to be the Jewish people lived like in isolation. So there was much less of a conflict where the you know the Jews and non-Jews did, almost didn't interact. Yeah. Uh, but today uh, it's not like that. So I think it's very important to make kids that they shouldn't feel like they're left like they do, they like they're missing out on something. You know, right. we have the most rich traditions and holidays, and there's so much meaning in, infused in it, and there's so much to be proud of to be a Jew uh, that you know. You don't want to let, you, especially children, who you know they're going to value the gifts, right? Mm-hmm. That's more exciting to them than you know until they grow older and to understand uh, why the value of being Jewish. So that's why I think it is important that they shouldn't feel left out. They shouldn't feel like they're missing something. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would assume that that's correct. Um, okay, so now what's interesting about Hanukkah is that we have this wonderful um, war. Is you can read about it fascinating stuff of how they came up with these ingenious ways to, to, to engage in battle because they were so much weaker. Like, th- think about a ragtag Jewish army uh, going up against the mighty, imp- you know, the empire. And it's happened before, It's happened again. We know that in the War of Independence, in, in uh, Israeli War of Independence in 1948, it was literally a ragtag group of, like, Holocaust survivors. And, like, Jewish people that didn't know anything about the first thing about war. And they were going up against five well-trained, well-financed Arab uh, armies, and it was just the the it was just sided against them. The uh, odds were against were against them. Six seven, you know, six-day war as well. Same thing, and miraculously, the Jewish people, as uh, they did in the time of Hanukkah, they they won, and 
the epilogue, the aftermath of this, is that they came back to the temple, the temple was defiled, and they couldn't find virgin uh, olive oil for, for the menorah. Now, the way menorah works is that you have, the, 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 um, the law is that the only oil that is kosher for the, the, the high priest, the adult, to light the menorah uh, is the first drop of a squeezed olive. So you squeeze an olive, you have lots of oil coming out of it. But just the first drop. Just the first drop. Well, that was the only one. And they would prepare that, and it would take some time to pre- prepare uh, these flasks of oil. And they couldn't find it. And, they, and eventually they found one that had a seal, and the miracle was that it lasted for eight days and eight nights. Hence, we uh, memorialize that uh, holiday and that a miracle uh, with the lighting of the menorah. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if you, you, have, you have seemingly two miracles here. You have, number one, the military battle. You have like a 25-year str- struggle, the small ragtag army, inexperienced soldiers against the mighty uh, Assyrian Greek Empire and their, and their armies, and all the battles and skirmishes. And eventually, they kick them out, they reestablish uh, Jewish sovereignty over Israel. That is a much more significant miracle, you would think. Uh, the, the other miracle of the, of the flask of oil seems like an afterthought. It's like a nice uh, cherry on the top. Oh, we don't have to have uh, use less oil uh, because we only have one flask and we just use the whole oil and it just lasted for longer than it typically would. You know how long it took to make more? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so why, would, why is that so significant? Why is that what we are remembering? interesting question. Like, uh, typically, when you look at a Jewish holiday and the mitzvah associated with that Jewish holiday, it would seem to, if, if the holiday has multiple miracles, you would seem to go to the greatest of the miracles, the most significant, impactful of the miracles, and try to highlight that. Uh, why would we go and take what seems to be like an afterthought? Yes, it's nice to have uh, uh, this virgin oil, this first drop, last for eight days, but in reality, the law happens to be that if you have no other oil, you can use, uh, you can use less, oil, less pristine oil. So wasn't that significant in the grand scheme of things? And it was just seven days. So, so yeah, yes, it's a very nice thing that the oil lasted beyond its, what it naturally should have lasted. But uh, why so significant? Why is that specifically what we're going to uh, relive every year? So that's a question. Multiple answers to that. Um, I'll share just one of them because we are already 1036. Um, actually, I have two answers here, but we'll see if we have extra time at the end. We'll get back to it. Perhaps the answer is like this. Actually, I have three answers. I'll give you one. Okay, Rabbi, we know how many answers you have. Just give us the answer. <laughs> okay, so we are told, we are promised in the Torah. The Torah promises that we will remain an eternal nation. And if you have just, uh, if you could expand your view to encompass the past 3,000 years of human history, well, we have already recorded history for 2,500 years. The idea of a nation that is constantly under attack, marginalized in every way possible, physically, economically, socially, Every way, 
right? And it's and every country, it's constantly we're a wandering nation. Like Jews have lived everywhere. We are not united seemingly by uh, by land, by language, by culture. Constant under attack, expulsion, inquisition, Holocaust, pogroms, blood libels, restrictions on, on practice, and we remain small in number, few in number. We're always the underdog, and we have yet still survived, and we're as vibrant as ever. That is unheard of in, in, in human history. Unheard of. You have all these mighty empires, empires they conquer, and what happens to the indigenous population? They get assimilated. Right? So there's a melting pot, and they become no different after a few hundred years. And the Jewish people were conquered again and again. And how many mighty uh, em- empires have existed? The Babylonians, the uh, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Ottomans. Um, I can't, can't remember so much about global history. There's so many. And the Jewish people are constantly going from place to place. Right? Always under duress. Still we survived. The, the, you know, the miracle of Jewish survival and the Jewish people reestablishing a state, when, is that, when does that ever happen? The nation was exiled um, from, their, from their state and 2,000 years later, they came back in the same nation, uninterrupted, with the same practices and the same traditions and the same tefillin that they found in the uh, in the caves in Qumran with the, with the with the uh, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, all the same tefillin we have today, all uninterrupted, okay? and come back to reestablish it. Like this, this miracle of Jewish survival is the most significant event in or some significant. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. It's the most uh, unlikely of events to have happened in human history. The reason why we would survive is because the Torah promised, the Almighty promised us, you will survive as an internal nation. In you know, you know, some instances it'll be really good for you. You know, if you misbehave, you'll have to pay the price. Either way, you're going to survive. And the end game is always the same. The way we get there is up to our choice. You could decide if you want to be a distinct nation because you're a distinct nation, or you decide that you would be a distinct nation by trying to assimilate as much as possible and having the normal laws be shoved upon you. Either way, the end game's the same. You'll remain a distinct nation. So, the the Greeks are attacking us. They're attacking our, our life, our culture, our practice. And this is a, a threat to you know to Jewish survival. It is. But we are promised, we know for sure that Jewish people are going to survive from hell or high water. We're going to survive. And that is something that the Almighty is bound by his promise. So the fact that the Jews won the war was something that the Almighty was bound by a, by a promise that he had to have, it had to have happened like that. However, the fact that we had that extra little miracle, that was just the cherry on the top. The Almighty did it just because he loves us. He didn't need to do that. It wasn't, like, he's, like he said, like in actual law, if you don't have that miracle, if you don't have the, the oil lasting for eight days, well, you could just use other oil. So why did the Almighty do it? Just because he loves us. He, he wasn't bound by any by any vow that he made to do it. It's just the extra chair on the top. That, we want to remember, remember that because that symbolizes not only that the Almighty fulfills his promises, but that he loves us and we're his people and he does things even if he doesn't have to. It's like a, a parent, you know, the parent and the teacher changing the child's diaper. You know? They both have to do it. Well, parents, mothers, okay, whatever. I apologize for that. 
always ask my wife to change diapers. But sometimes I change diapers as well. Don't look at me like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so a parent and a teacher, they both t- they change the diaper. What's the difference? The difference is, is that after you change the diaper, you give a hug and a kiss to your baby mm-hmm. or not. If you're just doing what you need to do, well, you change a diaper and that's it. You move on. Mm-hmm. A parent hugs and kisses the child because they just love them. That, uh, that love that the Almighty has for us you know, even in the darkest times, and even with the greatest challenge, the Almighty loves us, and there's nothing that we could do to uh, to rid ourselves of His love for us. And that is why, one of the reasons why, uh, we celebrate that. And you know, when we're lighting, lighting the candles, we're talking about what happened, the miracle, we cannot forget about the, the more significant miracle. And that, the fact that the Jewish people beat the mighty up, like David versus Goliath once again. The underdog, underdog wins. We can't forget about that, but we also have to keep in mind the fact that uh, Hanukkah symbolizes the fact that the Almighty loves us, even if He doesn't have to. Right? We're like His children; He's like our Father. Okay, so let's move on to uh, the next event. This is a not such a, not such a major event. Uh, most people, uh, it's another minor fast that we have on the tenth day of Teves, Hebrew month of Teves. So the the twenty fifth day of Kislev, the Hebrew month of Kislev, is when Hanukkah starts. The following month is, is called Tevis, and the 10th day of Tevis is a minor fast day. Uh, like we mentioned last week, minor fast days are, the four minor fast days are much less significant, there's much, it's much less uh, stringent, there's many more reasons for people who are not uh, capable or disinterested in fasting. Uh, they have kind of a, some more leeway. Uh, but the reason why it's a fast day is because uh, on this day, the siege of Jerusalem, or in the first temple time, I think four, four, five hundred years before the Common Era, it began. So the Babylonians, right, Nebuchadnezzar, those those names, we all heard the familiar the name, they, they were the ones who destroyed the first temple and began the first exile and sent the majority of Jewish life east to, to Babylon. And they it kind of remained like that for a thousand years uh, before it moved to Europe. Uh, even when they reinstituted the second temple, Ezra came back about seven years later to reinstitute the first temple. The second temple, the majority of the Jews stayed east, stayed in Babylon. So um, on this day, the 10th day of Tevis was when the siege around Jerusalem began. Uh, and what, I, and therefore, because it was the beginning of the downfall of the first temple, we mark it with a minor fast day. Uh, if you notice what the Jewish holiday, or the, at least the significant negative events in the Jewish in the Jewish calendar, that almost all of them are like related to the temple. We had the uh, fast of Gedalia. If you remember, we talked about that, talked about that last week. The fast of Gedalia is the day when this, this fellow Gedalia, who was the Jewish governor of the province of Judah, was assassinated, and that marked the end of Jewish uh, sovereignty over Israel from the Temple time. So the Temple was the beginning, what uh, was was kind of the uh, was the most significant event. The Temple's destroyed, but then there was a Jewish governor instituted to uh, over Judah, and he was assassinated, and that marked the end of Jewish life in Israel in its traditional setting. So. And obviously, Tisha, the ninth day of Av, the seventh day of Tammuz, the tenth day of Tevis, these are all days that are very significant because they revolve around the temple. And 
I think it's important to note why the temple is so prominent in our, you know, in a, in it, for us, like, we don't have a temple, and it's hard for us to imagine what was so significant about it. But when the temple did exist, that was the epicenter of Jewish life. It was one place where all Jews united several times a year. It was like, uh, you know, it was a place where Jews, uh, the sacrifices that were in the temple and the prayer, prayers that were in the temple were all, um, that was the core of Jewish life. And when the temple was destroyed, they had to, re- Judaism had to reinvent itself. And, oh, I apologize. Sorry. Sorry, I'm just being uh, hyperactive with my, uh, um, I apologize. The practices, lots of the practices that we have today were instituted in lieu of the temple, like prayers. The prayers that, our prayers are modeled after the temple because it was a, like, a central, uh, our religion was, you know, had a central uh, location where things happened on a, for a national scale. It was like, kind of like a national uh, location where national activities were done. And now the temple being destroyed we each have to do like our own personal activities because we don't have that unifying uh, idea like the temple. Yeah, and I think moving from having, feeling like you have a tangible interaction with God to an intangible interaction. And it's so much, I think it's easier to like be aware and stay plugged in when you have, when you could look to the temple and see the smoke of the sacrifices and when you're bringing animals and it's this very like, um, like daily, physical, tangible experience and then you know you lose that and it becomes harder uh-huh. and so, yeah. it's yeah. yeah i think your, your point is 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 really important one the tangible idea because the temple is like an interface between an interface that is my interface interface mm-hmm. between a physical world and a spiritual world mm-hmm. it's like you could do physical activities that have spiritual ramifications mm-hmm. so we have that today as well but that was in a much grander scale the temple uh, so it was a different Judaism. So for us, we live post the temple time, and therefore we live in a Judaism that is able to exist uh, outside of a temple. But we have to keep in mind that that was invented after the temple was destroyed. If you if you read the the Bible, you count how many mitzvahs are temple. So there's like a two hundred mitzvahs that are only temple. They're only associated when the temple exists. It was so central to Jewish life. And therefore, every event uh, bringing up to the calamity that was its destruction is significant because it's just another layer of, uh, of tragedy uh, that uh, was part of the unraveling of Jewish life. So that's the 10th day of, of, of Tavis. We have poem. Yes. So is that it? I mean, in terms of Yes, so it's there. Fasting is one aspect. There's special prayers that are associated uh, with Tenth Day of Tammuz, just like there are special prayers associated with the Fast of Gedalia, special prayers associated with the. Uh, well, well, that's that's for the three weeks, for the three weeks between um, in the seventh day of Tammuz. Tammuz is, is in the summer. Uh, I'll get to you in a second. Second, seventh day of Tammuz. That uh, is when the walls were breached. 
So you have a siege for a year and a half, and then you have the walls being breached. And then you have, uh, three weeks later, Tishbah when the temple is actually set on fire and destroyed. And during those three weeks, were very, very challenging times because when they breached the temple, they didn't exactly sit down and just eat falafel and wait for three weeks uh, to uh, destroy the temple. They were going house to house. And it was a very, very unpleasant time for the Jewish people that lived in Jerusalem then. Uh, so therefore, and this, and this repeated itself again in, uh, in uh, Second Temple as well. Josephus had first-hand accounts of like, what happened. Fires everywhere. People jump into the fire, and like he described, people would rather like die with the temple. Let me expire with the temple than at the sword of the a conqueror. Terrible, like terrible, terrible times. And uh, because those three weeks between the seventh day of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av were such challenging with the Jewish people, there are other laws associated not only with these bookended fasts of the seventh day of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av. The ninth day of being a major fast, as opposed to the seventeenth day of Tammuz being a minor fast, uh, but there's certain laws uh, with regards to um, uh, shaving, for for example, people uh, uh, certain certain restrictions on on, on shaving, certain restrictions on, on consumption of of, of meat and, and wine. Uh, as you get closer to this one event, uh, so yes, but there are, like you said, the, the, the these these fasts are associated with uh, days of uh, of reflection to realize how our Judaism today was affected by those events in yesteryear, uh, and therefore, and prayers as well. Okay, can we move on? Yeah, how's everyone doing? Yes. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> um, regarding, here's something about some people interested in rebuilding the temple. Yes. Do you think that will come about? Do you think that's just talk of the mailman? Do, Do I think it will come about? Well, Yes, yeah, so so we have our sources um, in the Torah, but also in, in in the in the Talmud talk about this third temple and third temple being the temple that is never destroyed, and we look at that as being a turning point. Like you heard of the idea of Mashiach, um, Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. So these ideas are when the world, our world, reaches a certain point where the function of the world is kind of completed and it moves on to a next phase when, and then this could happen incrementally. It doesn't have to happen at once. Like, you know, if we were having this class 150 years ago, you would be asking about the verse in Deuteronomy that says the Jews will go back to Israel. And so, wait a minute, are we really going back to Israel? Like, we're sitting in, uh, I don't know, Vilna or Kovno or some little town in Europe and they'll say, really? The Torah says very clearly the Jews will go back to Israel. There's no one living in Israel. Israel's desolate. There's nothing going on. And there's no movement at all to establish a state there. <clears throat> and are we really going back there? And you fast forward 150 years and there's 6 million Jews living in Israel. And that no one could have, but the Torah foretold it as being part of bringing this world to completion. And you know what? If we were having this conversation 2,500 years ago, you would say, wait a minute. The Torah says that every everyone, the whole world, will know the idea of one God? It's just us. It's just a few million Jews or a few hundred thousand Jews that know that idea. Know everyone else's pagans. Everyone. 
really? The, the world is all going to know this? And once again, if you fast forward, you'll see that the, you know, with thanks to our, our you know, our, our uh, monotheistic uh, partners, so to speak, um, uh, the majority of the world today, <laughs> the majority of the world today believes, at least understands the concept of one God. So these are all part of, of a world evolving and coming towards a certain point where a temple could be reinstituted, we could have uh, Jewish sovereignty of London. It's already happening, in, you know, in many cases. Temple, temple being uh, reinstituted, like, yes, those are all associated with the idea of Mashiach, but absolutely. As to how will it happen, are you going to have to build it? Is it going to descend from fire from the sky? Some opinions say that. I mean, a much more supernatural, is it going to be in a supernatural sense, or is it going to be in a uh, more of a like a, a tangible, physical sense? Uh, that is all uh, up in question. We don't really know. Uh, Maimonides writes, it says, no one will actually know till it actually happens. So we have some, va- we know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. But absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, they were really close in 1967. Whew, they were really close. Uh, they had, uh, like, the, for the, they captured the entire Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Like, all, everyone escaped to Jordan. Everyone, all the, all the Arabs were gone. And they could have very easily, you know, just sent a little bull- bulldozer and, you know, clear off Temple Mount and start building. Could have done it no problem. Or drop a little bomb there, like, uh, by mistake. You know, it was a, a war zone. You know, um, I always say this. Uh, when, oh, yeah, a little bomb, whatever. Uh, they, uh, and every, uh, every Muslim, every, every mosque in the world has a crescent on the top. Crescent's pointing to Mecca. Uh, the early Muslims all prayed to Jerusalem. Uh, we find this a lot with various religions, how they start off trying to court the Jews, trying to woo the Jews, and eventually when the Jews refuse to blend their religions with the new religion, they get antagonistic to the Jews. So, like, the Muslim day of rest originally was Saturday. They prayed to Jerusalem. Uh, but now the little crescent is facing away from Jerusalem. Now you look at the Dome of the Rock, right? Dome of the Rock is actually not a temple, it's not a mosque, it's actually a shrine uh, instituted in the year, built in the year. Seven, uh, six, seven, eight, no, 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 seven, I think you got mixed up with 7 11 when they captured uh, Spain. That's a. Yeah, well, but uh, if you look at the Dome of the Rock, you'll notice it doesn't have a crescent on top. It has a little, has like a little circle. Bizarre. Oh, it's not the Dome of the Rock, so. Huh? Well, Al-Aqsa is a mosque, but on the, which is right next to it. If you look at the Temple Mount, you'll notice there's two little kippas called two little yamakas. One of them is gold, which is only recently gold. Uh, 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 King Hussein sold his house in London and like, made like $80 million. It's like 60 and he, he just said, okay, I'm, I'm taking the house and I'm just buying tons of gold and we'll paint it gold. You look at old pictures of the Dome of the Rock, it wasn't gold, it was um, stone or whatever. Uh, but there's a circle, so I, why, why, would they, why would they not put a crescent? So my theory is, because when they want to build a temple, then I send in a crane, and the crane's going to go like, like that, like in the circle and just lift the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know, yeah. Uh, well, I, this is an unpopular opinion alert, 
But I actually think that, well, not what I said earlier. It was just a joke. Maybe. Who knows? But um, I actually think that the idea of Islamic control of Temple Mount is not such a bad idea. Uh, because in Jewish law, if someone, uh, the temple area, or the location where the temple actually stood, retains its consecrated holiness. Yeah. So, uh, and we know that someone who is quote-unquote impure, which is all of us, mm-hmm. right, we are not allowed to go there. We're not even allowed to tread there. Mm-hmm. So, if Israel had control of the Temple Mount, a Temple Mount, well, they had it for a few hours until Moshe Dayan in 1967 decided to give it over to the to the Islamic Waqf. But if Israel had control of Temple Mount, in all likelihood it would become perhaps the same tourist, have the same tourist value as mm-hmm. as the Western Wall does. Mm-hmm. And that's very bad if you have lots of Jews walking there and they're treading on a local place where they're not allowed to go. Mm-hmm. But it's a tourist well, well, yes, but it's... Widely open to everybody, but tourists go there. Yeah. But theoretically, you're not walking on where the Holy of Holies was. Like, I mean, that's basically the point, is that... Well, it's not even the Holy of Holies, it's where the temple was, wherever yeah. the... And there's disputes as to where exactly it was, so you have guys that go up there. I know a fellow who goes up there, because he says he's an expert, and he says he knows exactly where the temple was, it was over here, not over there, there's a few different opinions. Like, if you look at, at, at let's say, the Kotel, so a little bit to the left... If you're facing the Kotel, the western wall, a little bit to the left, uh, obviously on the mount, but a little bit to the left is where the is where the um, uh, the Dome of the Rock is. So most opinions say, well, right on top of there, there's this rock, and we have this tribe in the Mishnah, a certain rock, which seems to be the same rock, and that was used in place of the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Second Temple. Second Temple, we didn't have an Ark of the Covenant, so there's this little rock there. We assume that that rock is the same rock. Many opinions seem to say that that rock is the same rock, mm-hmm. and therefore the temple will be over there. Others say it's a little further to the right. Um, that would be uh, west, east, south. That would be south, further south. So if you're facing the temple, the the if you're facing the western wall, it'll be further to the right. Either way, uh, the idea now that the Muslims are contr- are controlled, there's much less Jews going up there, and that would be a major problem if Jews. Did frequent uh, the uh, Temple Mount, you mean huh? No, I'm not saying. Or? No, it's uh, uh, Jewish law. Okay. Um, that being said, I, I I think that you know we're so close, like to all the to all the um, things that are foretold. We have Israel. Like, think about that. Think about what kind of a quantum leap that is from where we were a few hundred years ago. We're united in a country. We have a country. So yes, not all the Jews are there yet, but there's six million Jews. That It's the largest Jewish population. And there were no Jews there. For thousands of years, there was no Jews there. Not, there was, there was like no, almost no Jewish communities in Israel. You know, there are those people that claim that they were there uninterrupted, but still, like we don't have any recorded Jewish communities in Israel in the thirteenth, or in the eighth century, ninth century, we don't know. About that. And now there's a majority—not majority, but the largest Jewish community—is uh, in Israel, which is incredible. So yes, we're we're kind of at the finish line. I think we have the majority of the world knowing about the idea of the Jewish God, or at least something similar. We have the Jews controlling Israel. So yes, it's not it's not so much far to go. Like it's 
you know. We're almost there. Anyhow, let's uh, move on. We have a, it's already eleven o'clock. Let's uh, try to finish everything. Poem Passover share a common theme. Uh, that's the theme of redemption. Purim, uh, the historical. Uh, 11.30. Okay. Sure. Awesome. Um, Purim and... Uh, so Purim and share a theme of redemption. It's, uh, once again, uh, times where Jewish the Jewish people were, um, in the case of Purim, were threatened with physical annihilation. In the case of Passover, were under physical and spiritual servitude in Egypt. Both times we were uh, uh, redeemed. Uh, we had a uh, transformation from being a, uh, you know, for being the uh, oppressed to being liberated to a certain sense. Uh, and if you notice, if you look at the Talmud, the Talmud tells us that uh, in the month of Nisan, Nisan is the Hebrew month uh, that we are in right now, the month of Pesach, uh, we were redeemed, and we, in the future, will be redeemed. So the, um, the the idea being is that this is the time which is auspicious for redemption. Uh, this is the time where the Jewish people were redeemed. We will be redeemed in the future, i.e., this is the time where redemption happens. And for us, on a practical level, on a practical level, we look at the, the mitzvahs of Passover. Passover is upcoming, right? So we have... Obviously, the Jews were, Jews were in Egypt for a long time. Uh, if you look at, at uh, Exodus chapter 6, it talks about Moses trying to convince the Jewish people to go out. Right? And the Jewish people says, no, 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 they, they weren't interested. Like, Imagine, they had uh, salvation offered to them, and they said, we're not interested. Why do they say that? Because it's the, it's the attitude of someone who is just resigned to their fate to think I will forever remain like this. And this is the worst, the worst kind of position to be in is in a bad position with no hope of ever getting out. Um, and the Jewish people were in, were in Egypt for so long uh, under the spell of the Egyptians in a physical and a spiritual way that they view themselves as being incapable of living any other kind of life. And, and they themselves didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe that they could ever change. So the first thing that, the first thing that, uh, that happened or that changed was the fact that Jewish people said, voila, we could change. Change is possible. And this is called redemption because uh, someone who is, someone who believes that they cannot change, they're incapable of change, is someone who is, like, beshackled to their fate. Like, they're a prisoner of their own mind. We've all heard that term before. And they're a prisoner because they don't think, they, they create for themselves certain limitations. They build barriers for themselves. So, you know, they're constricted. The first liberation that happened to the Jewish people was the fact that they actually were liberated from this mindset that mandated that they have to remain under the, the spell of the Egyptians forever. That was the first thing that happened. Second thing that happened is that uh, the change happened in an inorganic fashion. What do I mean by that? Um, any kind of change that someone has, you, you know, it, it's always gradual. 
you want to change the way you live, the way you eat, the way you exercise, the way your attitudes are, the way you, anything, anything you want to change about your habits, about your way of life, it always has to happen slowly. Somehow, on Passover, those laws were scrapped. On Passover, the change happened very rapidly. In, in, uh, in Jewish mysticism, they talk about these certain gates of purity and impurity. I don't know what this even means. And as I, hopefully I mentioned later, like I, perhaps another unpopular opinion alert, like I think that people today, Kabbalah is very exciting. I haven't heard the term Kabbalah. Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. But like, I know people that know nothing about Jewish learning that are ignorant, they're not, they're not scholars at all, but they seem to fashion themselves as experts in Kabbalah. And I like I, I view that as being number one a defilement of like the most intimate aspects of Jewish of Jewish thought of Jewish of Jewish scholarship, and it's just like and people just uh, uh, the understanding on the most surface level, the most superficial level, and claiming themselves to be experts. You know, it's like I, I think it's like a spiritual crutch. You know, people want to have a dose of spirituality, but don't want to go through the necessary steps that you actually need to actually have that. It's like a get-rich-quick you know, steam uh, to, to spirituality or like a, uh, you know, a magic uh, dieting pill. There is no magic dieting pill. There isn't. Every, everyone who has ever changed the way they've, uh, the way they've viewed you know, their, their health and their um, fitness and healthy eating and healthy living, you know that there's no magic workaround. But somehow, you look at any bestseller list, five of them will be diet books with some new insight or some new this or some new that. Everyone's trying to game the system because everyone wants the ends without the effort. Uh, and Kabbalah, it's kind of the same thing. Like you could learn things which seem very exciting and very stimulating, uh, but it's not really doing anything for you because you're trying to work around the real work. You're trying to find... And it, in spirituality, things take time. Themes have to grow. They, like I said, there's organic. Like you plant a seed, you water it, and before you know it, you have a tree. But that takes time, process, work, effort. That's the laws of growth. That's the laws of change. That's the way it always is. The exception is Passover. Passover, it was a meteoric rise from slave to master, so to speak, from being beshackled to being freed to redemption. We view Passover as a time when the Almighty is intervening with the normal course of life and enabling a certain measure of change to happen very rapidly. You're able to just take the elevator up the ladder instead of climbing one rung at at a time. Jewish people were the lowest level. They were no different than the Egyptians. You have a a statement in the Talmud saying that uh, when the when the Jews would split the sea, so the, so the Jews are walking in the uh, dry land and the, and the Egyptians are, 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 are drowning. So you have uh, this dialogue. The angels are saying, wait a minute, these people are idolaters and these people are idolaters. How come these guys are walking on dry land and these, the Egyptians are, are drowning? They're, they're no different. You know, in a certain sense, the Jews and the Egyptians were no different. And then, like that, overnight... Uh, a couple of weeks later, they're able to experience national prophecy. They're able to get the Torah 50 days later. Like, what happened? What changed? 
So it wasn't organic. It wasn't step-by-step. It wasn't small bites, don't uh, bite off more than you could chew. It wasn't all those cliches about change. It was like that. It was a certain spiritual force that was just given down to the world and it just enabled the Jews to harness it and just rock it uh, up the uh, up the ladder. You know, my uh, my grandfather has an article in uh, one of his books where he writes about the death of the firstborn. So we're all familiar with the final of the the final plague of the ten plagues. So you have the, the firstborn and the firstborn. So what, why, the, why the firstborn dying? Like it's such a bizarre. Like why the secondborn? Why not the grandmothers, uncles, like cousins, lastborn? Like what's so significant about the firstborn? And why was it targeted? Uh, the plague targeted at them. So one of the answers is that the Egyptians they worshipped being firstborn. They, the, the Egyptians, they love pyramids. Why? Because it's like the oldest and the next oldest. And like it's, it's just the old. Pharaoh was the oldest child of an oldest child of an oldest child of an oldest child. That's the, that's the way it was. And if you look at Moses, interestingly, Moses was not the oldest child, son of not the oldest child, not son of not the oldest child, and going back and back and back. And that was like a conflict of do you just get status at birth or do you have to earn it? So that's part of the conflict, you know. Uh, so that's one answer, and then specifically what they valued and what they worshipped was what uh, you know the Jewish people under that spell was what was brought down to its knees. The Jewish people who were under Egyptian mindset and they are influenced by the Egyptians, and suddenly they see the Egyptian uh, world view crumbling. That's very good to help them get out of that mindset of the Egyptian mindset and adopt a new mindset. So that's one answer. But my grandfather writes in an article, he says that on Passover, the Almighty brought down a certain spiritual energy to the world. An incredible amount of just uh, spiritual currency. And that enabled the Jews to just grab onto it and just rot hit ship through, you know, through all the stages of growth. And like we said, it's a, it's a, it's an atypical fashion. Normally, you want to grow, you want to change. It has to happen slowly, gradually, incrementally. Passover, because of this wonderful rush of spiritual energy, we were able to grow uh, much faster. Because this, there was this rush of spiritual energy, the firstborn, which are more susceptible to spirituality, they have like spiritual antenna. Antenna is a plural antenna. Antennae. Antennae. They had spiritual antennae, and they were able to perceive it, and they couldn't handle it, and they were just impeded. They just died. It wasn't like it was two separate things. It was like, uh, you know, there was the plague, which was disassociated from uh, the redemption. It was one thing. It was a certain a boost, spiritual boost given to the world, and the people that were able to experience it, but not harness it which were the first form, which have more of an inclination towards spirituality, they perished because they couldn't handle it. Like they stuck their finger into the electric uh, outlet. Electricity is a really good thing if you know what to do with it. If you just have too much of it, it'll just kill you. Right? So the Jewish people were able to harness this rush of electricity and take it to, uh, 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 to, uh, and just take it and run with it, so to speak. And it isn't in organic fashion, it's atypical, but that is the spiritual energy of the holiday. And in 2014, today, when we experience 
Passover, we can also tap in to that spiritual entity that existed at the time of the redemption. And as we'll, we'll notice, that the rituals that are associated with Passover, the mitzvahs associated with Passover, are directing us at, number one, the idea of change, uh, and number two, the idea of you're doing a lot. It's like the Seder. Like, there's so much stuff going on there. It, it, it's it's we're not exactly spreading it out. We're not spreading ourselves uh, over a, a seven day holiday. It's like on one night we're going to do so much, and we're doing so much because there's so much opportunity, and all of all of what we're doing is trying to take that energy and translate it into something real that we can inculcate into our lives. So, uh, so what's what's the mitzvah of, of what's the primary mitzvah of Passover? Eating eating unleavened bread and refraining from chametz, which is leavened bread. And what's interesting is that you look at leavened bread and unleavened bread; the difference is very minute. Right? Flour, water, ingredients are the same. What's the difference between between leaven and one of them, it was allowed to rise, or either it was either via artificial means like yeast, mm-hmm. or it was just sat around. It, just, it was allowed to expand, to, to to grow, to augment, come bigger. And the matzah was was kept flat and was baked right away, and very quickly, very quickly um, uh, baked. And you look at you look at bread, nice big and puffy, and you look at matzah flat, and essentially the same thing. Essentially, they're the same thing. Uh, but in our perception, one of them seems so appealing, so shiny. One of them seems so flat. You, if you look at it, you don't know. It's like those iPad commercials where they put the pencil and the iPad behind it. It's like if you put a matzah behind a pencil, you don't see it. <laughs> uh, but, but a bread, you just you can't, you can't miss it. We have a statement in the Talmud that compares the 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 evil inclination, this force which is trying to prevent us from accomplishing what our what our uh, soul wants us to accomplish, we compare that to the leaven in the bread. Now the question is, wait a minute, what does the evil inclination, this force, this formidable foe that is trying to prevent us from accomplishing what our soul wants to accomplish, what does that have to do? With the culinary quality that in, that makes bread rise, that turns unleavened bread into leavened bread, seems bizarre. What do they have to do with each other? Huh? So, well, it's symbolic, but what's what is it symbolic of? So, I'm, 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 if I'm going through this quickly, it's because I am. If you notice, <laughs> I'm trying to. We still have to finish the whole. Uh, They're not going to come in here at eight. So we can go a little, a little bit longer. Okay, fine. But I don't like going a little longer. So I'll do a little bit. Maybe I came a little late, because then they say, "Oh, I would love to go to the class, but Rabbi Wolby always goes over time, and I have an appointment at twelve o'clock." That's what I'm scared of. Anyhow, so uh, let's quickly go through this. So the conflict I mentioned this earlier, and I it's a nice callback to what we talked about earlier. The conflict of our lives is are we going to give preferential treatment to our soul or our body? That is what life is about. That is the decision that we're going to have to make. It's all about, is the soul the rider 
and the body the tool used to implement the desires of the soul? Or is the other way around, where what we care about is our body, and the soul is just an afterthought, a mythical or mystical entity that may or may not exist? That is the conflict. And our goal with, for example, the Torah, is to assist us in viewing the soul as being you know, in the driver's seat and the body taking the back seat. And the goal of our evil inclination is to confuse us and to deceive us into believing that our body, which is something which is, you know, in 50, 80, 100 years from now, is going to be in the ground. It's, it's very, uh, a very short shelf life. And we're going to be deceived into believing that that should be the focus or the core focus of our, of our life and our, t- our activities. The proper attitude is that, yes, the soul, or, or um, let's talk this way, the body is very important. Why? Because if you don't have a functioning body, if you don't have your physical life uh, you know, in, in order, you won't be able to do what your soul wants to do. But the danger is to believe that the body is the end goal. What the what the evil inclination is going to do is going to take our matzah, our our physical, what we our physical sustenance, so to speak, and expand it, and confuse us into thinking that this is what it's all about. While the matzah symbolizes something, it's kind of the same thing. It's taking care of your physical needs, but you know that this is not really what it's all about. And when you when when you tap into the lesson of the matzah, what you're doing is adopting a certain worldview, which is crucial to your growth. Because your growth, all growth, all change is all about this one idea, this one conflict. Uh, that is the proper understanding of what your mission in life is. Is it a spiritual mission? Is it a physical mission? Is it just about amassing as much physical goodies as I can? Or is it, is it about amassing as many spiritual goodies as I can? That's what it's all about. And any change you have, and even things that you that you think to be, uh, uh, even dieting, right? Which is uh, always the first example of thinking about change, right? So dieting, it's about... Do I want to be healthy? Do I want to have my body in good shape? Or I'm going to make a short-term decision about just consuming as much ice cream and potato chips as possible. Once again, it's a, it's a body-soul conflict. What is important to me? Is it important for me to have a body that's going to be a, a tool that I'm going to use for the next uh, you know, foreseeable future the rest of my life? Or am I going to say that what I want is as much physical ratification and uh, what you know, and, and that's because that's the goal. So therefore, I just let me just you know, let me just consume and try to uh, indulge as much as I, as much as I possibly can. Uh, if we are going to tap in to the spiritual entity that exists on Passover, it's very important for us to realize that we're going to have to give up compromise a little bit on our physical aspirations in order to accomplish our spiritual aspirations. And that's why this matzah chametz thing is so important. The, 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 Torah, the, Talmud, the Torah declares that someone who eats chametz, someone who eats leavened bread on Passover, is 
disenfranchised from the Jewish people. He's cut off from the Jewish people. It seems like a very strict, stringent uh, punishment, so to speak, for what seems to be something very minor. Is, is, is it bread or is it matzah? Well, it's almost the same ingredients. Why are you going so stringent on someone who eats chametz on Passover? The answer is because chametz and, chametz and matzah uh, underscore the number one element of Jewish philosophy. And that is, we're here in this world for a reason. And that reason is to do as many mitzvahs as we can, to achieve as many spiritual goals as we possibly can. The thing that's going to stand in our way is our Yetzirah, our, our evil inclination, who is going to convince us that we're here in this world for this world's sake alone, to accomplish as many physical things. That is the number one of the Jewish philosophy. And it's underscored in the mitzvah of chametz, of leavened bread, versus matzah. So, these, it's, it's not a culinary mitzvah. It's, it's not just a mitzvah that oh, this is the Jewish culture to eat this food versus that food. It's the entire Jewish philosophy. And you know, it's expressed in, in this mitzvah. And therefore, when someone is saying, I don't want to have a part in this ritual, in this mitzvah, what they're really saying is, I don't want to have a part in the Jewish life. They're kind of cutting themselves off from Jewish life because Jewish life is all about dealing or constantly engaging in the the struggle between our physical and spiritual existence and trying to infuse our life as much as we can with spiritual pursuits. When someone says, I don't want a part of that, they're essentially cutting themselves off from the Jewish people. Hence, uh, their their punishment is, well, you're you're leaving. You want out. Okay, so you're allowed out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, interesting. So the uh, the Hebrew word for chametz is a chet, a mem, and a tzaddik, like this. Come see, it's chametz. The Hebrew word for matzah, I'm writing it not in order on purpose to demonstrate, but uh, is mem. So these, these two words seem very similar. I don't know if you can see it's pretty far. Mm-hmm. But what the only difference is this little bit, you know, where the hay is a little bit of a break, and the chet, it's just, it seems very, very minor. Mm-hmm. And which, once again, uh, thanks for reminding me of something I said online. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Rabbi Wolby, <Rabbi> thank you. <laughs> SEO. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it is very minor, and it's it's one of the, it's one of the finer things in life. It's like you know, even on the fit, like on the uh, actually make matzah. Mm-hmm. If you make matzah, you have eighteen minutes from when you put the water in the flour to when it's in the, in the oven. If it's nineteen minutes, it's not it's not chametz. It, it, it's not matzah. It's chametz. So there's a, a very fine line between viewing your physical life as being fuel and energy for your for your spiritual life or as viewing it as as an as an end to its own mm-hmm. you can have two people wolfing down shawarmas and one of them is doing it with a certain understanding and realization that i'm doing this because i need energy for my spiritual pursuits and that's a mitzvah well the other guy has in his mind that's just engaging indulging in in in, in physicality for its own sake and that's a sin I don't know if it's quite a sin, but it's a certain 
it's at least a, 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 a philosophical sin. Because what he's doing is giving uh, value, intrinsic value, to physicality. There cannot be an intrinsic value to physicality. That's a mistake. That is the work of the Yetzirah. That is the augmentation uh, of the physicality, of the, of, of the, of the matzah. Taking and making it look a little bit all puffed up. Uh, aggrandizing the physicality. Yes. Uh, so it, it could look very similar to the, to the uninitiated observer. They're doing the same thing. Well, one of them is doing a wonderful mitzvah. The other one is doing uh, at least a uh, uh, not fully, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say he's doing a sin, but uh, he's, well, let's, well, he's not doing a mitzvah. Well, yeah, but, but it's more than that. It's, it's a certain rejection of the Jewish yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Well, there, there's, there, there's, there's a lot. Well, we also have the idea of lacham oni of the bread of the afflicted, a bread of the affliction. There's lots and lots of stuff going on. Um, you, uh, yeah, and and absolutely, you know, humility is a huge part of it. Humility is. We talk about Pesach, the holiday of Pesach, and the holiday of of Shavuos, right? The holiday we got the Torah as being sort of a bridge, like it's just it's kind of one. It's while well, fifty days apart, but it's one process of redemption to receiving the Torah, like rejection of one way of life to adoption of another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that Moses, Moses was the one who gave us the Torah. What was Moses' defining quality? His humility, right? And we always view humility as being the vessel with which the Torah can be filled in. If someone, Talmud declares many times over. Uh, in different uh, ways that someone who is haughty uh, cannot have faith and cannot have Torah. Because what he's saying is that, look at me, I, I accomplished what I did on my own. Right? I, I have value uh, irrespective of the Almighty. So how could they have the how could they have reverence to the Almighty, the Almighty or his Torah when they think that, that their accomplishments are theirs alone? So humility and um, and that, that the, the connection of humility to matzah goes very well with that being a preparation or the starting point of developing a person and a nation capable of receiving the Torah uh, 50 days later. Okay, so we have two more minutes, and I'm going to try to do this as fast as, I, as fast as possible can. You have from Passover to uh, Shavuos, you have... 50 days. These are the days where we count the Omer. So you hear the term Omer. So these are seven. The Torah says seven days times seven times uh, seven weeks. So that's 49 days. The 50th day is Shavuos. Uh, the Jews, like we said, when they left Egypt, they had this meteoric rise from being enslaved, uh, tethered to a certain way of life. They uh, at the beginning of it, they kind of shed themselves of uh, Pharaoh's influence, the Egyptians' influence. The ten plagues were to hammer home the idea of uh, the fallibility of the Egyptians, because 
as a slave, you, you may think that your master is infallible and comes along these plagues, which kind of show you that, you know, he's human and, he, and to try to shed that way of life. 50 days later, they get the Torah, the formation of the nation. The, 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 the experience at Sinai is critical because of two reasons. Reason number one is because when we, the Ten Commandments, it's the beginning of the Jews getting the Torah. The Jews would stay in, in at Sinai, camped around the mountain for a little bit less than a year, where they would study Torah from Moses. Uh, that's number one. So it's Torah-centric. Number two, it's uh, faith-centric, because it's a national revelation. It's the formation of a nation unlike any other nation, unlike any other religion. We have many, many religions out there. We are the only ones that can claim to have a national prophecy, a national revelation. It wasn't just Moses uh, convincing us that he had a prophecy. It was something that we experienced with our own eyes. We, We were there. The entire nation was there. Millions of people witnessing a supernatural event, having national prophecy. Uh, therefore, that's the reason, that's the evidence that we have to, to, you know, even today, to know that our religion is is true. We know we know it's true. We have evidence. It's it's a, it's an unfalsifiable event, uh, as opposed to you know not to denigrate other religions, but Muhammad, if he was lying, no one would ever know. Joseph Smith, if he was lying, no one would ever know. Paul, the way to Tarsus, if he was lying, then no one would, no one would ever know. So, uh, but as opposed to Moses, Moses can convince us that we saw something that he that we didn't see. So uh, that's the significance of the holiday of Shavuos, and um, we have the last we have uh, we mentioned earlier um, into the summer we have the seventh day of Tammuz, and three weeks later the three the three weeks of mourning. Uh, we're mourning for the destruction of the temple, the dispersion of the Jews. Uh, away from Israel, but more specifically, we're mourning for our current state, our current state of a, of a Jewish nation that is not exactly uh, fulfilling its full potential. Uh, hopefully, we will once again reclaim this mantle of leadership. We'll be the model nation. We'll be the light into the nations. Uh, we'll be the, the the you know the people with the highest uh, moral compass. We'll be the ones that teach the you know, teach the entire world. And that's what we were at one point when we had the temple. We don't have that anymore. We hope to regain that. But it's more a, a reflect more than just a uh, reflection of the past, but also a reflection of the present and our state of being. A nation that hasn't actualized its potential uh, to the fullest, or hasn't at least currently. And uh, the last significant event in the Jewish calendar is the month of Elul. The month of Elul, which is the final month, it's the preparation towards uh, towards Rosh Hashanah. It's kind of like the you know the end of the year, and it's the time where um, in in uh, in antiquity, Moses, as we mentioned last week, Moses went up to the mountain, went up for 40 days three times. Uh, first time he came back and he saw the, uh, he saw the golden calf. And, that's, and that, that day was the seventh day of Tammuz. He went up again, he came back again, and then he went up a third time, and that was on the first day of Elul. And that was the time that it culminated 40 days later on Yom Kippur with the final atonement. Hence, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. But those 40 days are days of mercy. Those are days where uh, reflection of our, it, it's days of accounting as well for our previous, for the, for the previous year. And it's days building up to Rosh Hashanah and, and, you know, and the holy days 
of Rosh Hashanah and, and the, the days of repentance and, the day, and Yom Kippur. So it's a time for getting in the mode, getting in the zone of uh, the uh, of the holidays and, of, and the seriousness of the holidays. Uh, it's days where traditionally the Jews have, uh, at the end of davening in the mornings, they blow the shofar. Even though the mitzvah of the shofar is only on Rosh Hashanah, but throughout the month of Elul, it's times it's a time for getting ready, and therefore they, they blow the shofar. And uh, you know, even to this day, it's a time where is auspicious for us to um, to you know get an accounting of, of who we are, who we are, what did we accomplish last year. What are our goals for ourselves and lives? What are the impediments? What are the things? What are the obstacles facing us? And trying to come up with strategies and tactics to overcome them and to try to, you know, realize our own individual and hopefully our national potential as well. So that's the month of Elul. Uh, there are other things I didn't cover. I didn't cover Lagba Omer. I can talk about the modern holidays like uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, uh, the day of uh, uh, independence. Uh, also very significant. It's the day where the you know the Jewish people reestablished the state. Very significant. Um, we have the Yom HaShoah, other things, more modern uh, holidays. Um, but we'll stop here. And uh, we have Passover coming up. And it's a time for personal redemption. And the hope is, is that we could tap into that certain spiritual energy. So in a week from tomorrow night, we have the Seder night. I'm going to be in Canada with a... Um, with uh, my in-laws, my wife's family. Very excited about that. Next Sunday will, will not be a class. I'm going to be flying Sunday, uh, Sunday morning. Uh, and then the following class, the, the upcoming class would be, I think, uh, the 20-something, yeah. Uh, so Passover ends on the 22nd, and the week uh, later will be the 20, I, I think I think 27th. I think you're right. Yeah, the next class is April 27th. And the topic is? Ten Commandments of Parenting. So hopefully over the next uh, three weeks, I will prepare a class on that. Either that or I'll, <laughs> either that or I'll make it up. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just make it up. I want, my wife will be like, yeah, yeah. I want, I want to have her come here because she's much better at parenting than I am. <laughs> but uh, either way, it was lovely. I hope you all enjoyed, and we'll see you next time.